Um, as far as what I do, I, I do want to, um, uh, I don't want to just get up here and read a, an ancient dissertation um, because I, I'm not a torturous individual. Um, but I do want to apply it a little bit. And I have some experience doing this because I'm in a unique position where I talk to a lot of young, let's call them political elites, generally speaking, uh, through the fellowship programs. Many of them are Catholic, Christian, conservative of some kind. They come to Claremont. They're thinking about, no doubt, uh, the kinds of things that you were all thinking about. And I also uh, founded a publication that's gotten a lot of trouble. It's been a lot of fun called The American Mind, which um, explores, shall we say, many of the alternative views on the right today. And so I'm, I'm very online and in touch with uh, people in tech and in finance. Um, and so, so I, I've been in this situation where I see a lot of these issues coming to the fore and um, it's, it's really a, a privilege in a way to have, have studied what I studied for the reasons I studied it <laughs> and then see uh, it's all you know, ripped from today's headlines and what we're arguing about uh, in the public square. So just as an example, um, you know, right now I have uh, back in my room on deck a statement on uh, a much bolder uh, jurisprudence for the right um, that some of my friends and I have been working on for a while. Um, we hope that makes a splash in terms of conservative jurisprudence. Um, we have a statement from Chris Rufo, uh, an introduction to a statement from Chris Rufo, who's one of these guys who's out in the media talking about, uh, uh, you know, the wokeness, <laughs> uh, to put it mildly. <laughs> and that statement is about, you know, how we should be treating uh, racial categories in government. And I guess, you know, I, I, I would refer to a lot of this as kind of a new burgeoning right among younger people um, who are um, much more morally attuned or attuned to moral things and issues like the common good in a way that perhaps uh, is superior to some of uh, the older folks on, on the right. And I, if I was going to characterize it, I would say um, they reject the notion that the purpose of government is morally neutral. Or, or merely to give autonomous individuals the freedom to do whatever they wish, right? I mean, that's, that's the, the, the strong rejection on the part of a lot of uh, intelligent young people is just this, this idea that, that government is morally neutral, that it's just giving the autonomous individual, uh, you know, unbounded freedom is clearly something they reject. And not all of them are religious. And this is something that I think uh, is, is remarkable. You know, there's a lot of young people who are uh, curious about Christianity, right? And, but they, but, and they, they are curious because they reject this idea that's been foisted on them that they should, as we say at the American Mind, live in the pod, eat the bugs, watch the porn, and, you know, tune out. And they see that, and they want to, they want to counter it. They want to oppose it. And I think, as you just say at the outset, that's remarkable. That's a remarkable development, that you have that happening organically. And, and if anything, that's something that the church should be thinking about uh, you know, how do we reach these people who are, in some ways, we've reduced everything to the absurd. It's gotten so bad that now you have groups of young people actively looking for ways to live moral lives. And, uh, you know, if there's any kind of sliver of hope in our situation, it's taking advantage of this. Um, I'm also um, in a curious position where I'm, uh, in a way, moving into more active uh, political business life to do some of these things that, that we've been talking about. Um, outside of the academy. So it's, uh, 
uh, when we talk about media and technology, I think there's a lot that needs to happen there. Uh, hopefully, I can talk with some of you about that more tonight. Um, but on the intellectual side, I would say one thing lacking in a lot of the discussions that we've had um, in academic circles is a serious discussion about how media and technology are affecting everything we've been talking about. So I just can't start without without just noting that. I mean, we talk about the homestead, for instance. The solution for uh, the, the household is in some ways going to have to use technology. Right? There's no there's going to be no return to uh, you know, the yeoman farmer. On the other hand, I know a lot of people who quietly disagree with, say, leg legacy technology companies and how they extract from individuals and how they're part of a movement that's destroying the family. And I know a lot of people who are quietly thinking about how do you create a digital homestead where, you know, you're not all addicted to screens, but in some ways you're using technology to be self-sufficient. Uh, that kind of was the promise that was never delivered on. And I think there's a lot there. Uh, again, it's a... Uh, it's a David versus Goliath, but there's a lot there that, that could be done. And, and, and intellectually, let's just, let's just, let me just say at the outset, we have not thought seriously about technology. I mean, you can't just read uh, Heidegger and, you know, on tech maybe and, and a few others in philosophy class and then walk away. This is an enormous problem that relates directly to the deeper issues we are talking about. Uh, Marshall McLuhan, Catholic, uh, practicing Catholic guy with five kids. I mean, wrote some interesting things about this. That's that's an area of intellectual exploration that I would just uh, encourage anyone who's still sort of free uh, to explore uh, because we need people exploring those issues who come from the background of everyone in this room. And if we don't have that, we're, we're definitely going to lose. Uh, in any event, so, so I have two, um, if I look back, there's two ways in which I've been formed, for better or worse. Uh, one is through the students of uh, Charles DeConnick and students of students of, of, uh, of DeConnick, and then also um, Leo Strauss, um, students of Leo Strauss and students of students of Leo Strauss. And that puts you in an interesting position. Uh, either what I'm going to say makes sense and is harmonious because of those two strands, or it's monstrous. I don't know. I'll leave that to you to decide. Um, but I like to, I've always, I've always liked to, uh, to joke, if there's one way not to get tenure somewhere, it'd be to mix Strauss and Thomism. Uh, and I'd always try to think of things I could say to, to just make sure I didn't get a job, like, Leo Strauss is the handmaid of Thomism. <laughs> <laughs> Ensures that no one, no one likes you. Um, um, but I think uh, my definition of, of a Thomist is one who argues that others who identify as Thomists are not, in fact, true disciples of St. Thomas. <laughs> Uh, Thomism is something similar. It's the scholastic, philosophical, theological uh, system of arguing those who claim they're expounding the scholastic, philosophical, theological system of St. Thomas Aquinas are in fact modernists, um, as we know. Uh, so I I'm going to do uh, three things in the time I have. Um, I want to talk about how we got to this place where we view the American founding and the American regime in the way that we see it now. Uh, why these accusations and this debate is raging right now. How do we get here? And then I'm going to talk a little bit uh, provocatively, probably, about what I think the old republic was or what's been obscured from our vision uh, in the American founding and the old republic because it's gone. I mean, I, I don't make any claims that we still have it. Uh, we've probably experienced a few uh, serious regime level alterations in the 250 or so years we've been around. Um, but I, I want to clarify what I think um, some of what was going on 
at the time in terms of the common good especially and then and then talk about what this might tell us about you know where we're going so what i want to start with is is humility um you know just it's it's a privilege to be here why because this is a very rare group of people um and you can't emphasize this enough as the intellectual world you know falls apart uh, before our eyes it's always it's always been thus but it's very rare that um, that your type, right, of everyone in this room who's interested in hearing this is extremely rare. So like it or not, uh, you know, a lot does rest on your shoulders. <laughs> and, and, and that's why, um, that's why it, it's so good to be part of, of such an event. But I'd say that humility is needed not just because of our own failings. The humility is needed because we need to acknowledge that we're in a situation and have been for some time in which uh, we're trying to resurrect many times older traditions that um, maybe are still living but are on life support. And this is, becomes important when you look at the American founding. Because how do you know what you know about the American founding? Like what do you really know about America? Besides the fact that, you know, history classes are pretty bad these days if you learned anything at all. Uh, besides the fact people don't, you know, read original texts. How do you actually know what you know about the American founding. Now, most likely, you, you've read a few things, right, from the era, piecemeal. Maybe you read Federalist 10 or Federalist 51, uh, maybe when you were in high school, if you were lucky, right? You've read a few documents. Um, you've, you, maybe you've read a few secondary books, secondary sources. Maybe you read Patrick Deneen's book, right? Which, I mean, in that book, I don't think he even, it wasn't really his purpose, but uh, he quotes maybe three or four Federalist Papers, right? So how, how do you have access to what was actually going on then? And I, I would say humility is needed because we haven't read the words. And I know we haven't read the words because we don't even have the documents in, uh, in uh, full and upright condition. When I was working on this dissertation, for instance, the documentary ratification of the United States of America, which is a big compendium of everything that was going on in the papers at the time, which there's just mountains of, mountains of text, right? They were still putting that into uh, an official set volume, and they, I think they're still working on it. Madison's works, President of the United States, the last part of his life, I don't think those official volumes are even out yet. So when anyone tells me that we, you know, we, we, we know all this about the founding, I have to question, right, how much do we know? Because the early years of the American Republic are unique, and, and it may take, uh, you know, we may fade away and maybe it take a couple hundred years for people to look back in, in kind of glowing terms again. They're unique because you can see the founding of a regime, right? Usually it's shrouded in mystery, it's shrouded in mist, it, it's, uh, it's shrouded in myth. But, but we actually have access to a documentary record of a people that's arguing about how they should found their own regime. That's remarkable. Right? That's just interesting. If you're interested at all in human nature and politics, you actually have a record of this. I mean, they're consciously determining right, how to adopt a form of government. And these are relatively large communities of human beings spread out on the eastern seaboard. So not only that, it's, it's a long period of time. Um, you know, you say we were formally established in the space of 13 years um, from the separation of the British Empire by means of the Declaration to the Constitution itself. You have the uh, arguments about um, the Articles of Confederation in between. 
We're arguing about those for a long time. That takes years, that process, as the states argue about it. Uh, but more than that, you have two centuries or a century and a half at least of practice, right, of people who have been forming their own political regime in some way. Now, what's remarkable about that is I think uh, you might agree with me. My, my kids and my wife all love Survivor. I haven't gotten into it, but, uh, but they watch Survivor. All, all I think when I see that show is can you imagine if you took uh, a random sample of Americans today and then put them in the situation that, that those Puritans were in? on the eastern seaboard, <laughs> I would submit to you that it would be all Jamestown. I don't think we'd be standing here right now. Uh, but they had to form their own political communities. This is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, and that would have been going on for over a century. And then they argued right, about how exactly to fine tune this thing. So. So, so the, the remarkable fact is that we, we have some kind of direct contact, contact to this um, through speeches, letters, you know, uh, private and public um, plays, poetry, and all, all this sort of thing. It's all just sitting there and no one reads it. And like I said, I know that no one reads it not only because they, don't, they didn't put it all into uh, evol you know, official volumes yet. I, when I was at Claremont, which has a lot of people studying, uh, some little rare places where people study this stuff, I was the first one, myself and Joe Bissett, were the first ones to ask the library to get a copy, an uh, electronic copy at least, of the doc documentary history of the ratification. So there's a simple level here that I will remain firm on, which is that no one reads the words. And if you do read the words, you read them through secondary literature of people debating about what's going on right now. The American founding for any American is the great Rorschach test. You look at it and you want to do one of two simple things. You want to say, this is why we're so great. I'm going to pull out why we're so great. Or you want to say, this is the evil seeds of why we're so terrible. And I'm going to pull out why we're so terrible. And what's lost in all of that, of course, is an actual objective quest for the truth of what was what was going on at the time. So um, the, the, the problem is, and I'll, I'm going to end with this as well, the problem is that there's a lot of isms uh, that we're fighting. And that's always a warning sign, right? An ideological warning sign. We're fighting simplistic isms. We're creating enemies of, of isms. Liberalism is a very dangerous word when we're actually trying to counter, um, you know, flesh and blood uh, reality. So in any event, I'm going to give you a, a, a proposal that this is kind of how the story comes together for how you view America, no matter where you stand on the topic. And I'm sure there's people who, who are all over the map in this room. What you, what you, what you need to see is that we, we neglect kind of who we are for, for a while. So, so in uh, 1968, I think it is, Bernard Balin is a Harvard historian, writes a book called The Ideological Origins. Uh, of the American Revolution. And this book is monumental because it's the first time in probably at that point like 80 years, 70, 80 years, that a serious scholar wrote a book that, that made a big splash in which he talked about how ideas mattered, how ideas were causal. And he didn't even say idea, he says ideological origins. And what he says in the beginning of that book is that John Adams, uh, he's reading a letter by John Adams, and John Adams said, you know, if someone wants to understand this later on in history, they're going to have to go back to all the, the revolutionary period leading up to the revolution when you know, things were getting hot in America, and they're going to have to read all the pamphlets. Because if you read those, you'll understand what this was about. And Balin thinks, well, that's probably a good idea. You know, maybe I should study the pamphlets and what they were saying. And as he does it, I won't, I won't bother to find the line, but he says something like, 
it began to occur to me that, um, and I'll, I'll put it in my own words, it began to occur to me that these ideas really meant something to these people. They, they might have actually meant what they said. Now, that's hilarious to the common person, right? But that's monumental for the scholarship. Because in the scholarship, you really had, I can't emphasize this enough, you had the idea that ideas were meaningless. So Carl Becker writes uh, uh, one of the only major studies of the Declaration during this period. It's called the Declaration of Independence, a study in the history of political ideas. In the title of the book, A Study in the History of Political Ideas, published in 1922. And he says, to ask whether the natural rights philosophy of the Declaration of Independence is true or false is essentially a meaningless question. Right, we're, not, we're not asking about truth or falsity. We're documenting uh, the history of ideas. Charles Beard writes the economic interpretation of the Constitution, of, the, of, of really the American regime. And uh, he's an interesting guy. He changes his opinion over time, but there is a watered-down Marxist quality to it. I mean, it's, it's valuable analysis, but his analysis is that this was all economics, right? This is all a matter of economic self-interest. Uh, that's how the Constitution comes to be. And, and he is the first guy who really points to Federalist 10 and Federalist 51, the idea that the American Constitution, the American regime, is really a system of checks and balances. It has nothing to do with the good or virtue. Uh, it's about uh, just balancing factionalism. And he knows that, and he cites, uh, he puts people's minds to, to Federalist 10 and 51 out of all the documents you could pick. And that's what begins, that's, that's actually why you read it still today in some ways in high school. Now, what does Beard think of our, our topic today? What does he think about the common good? Charles Beard doesn't believe in a common good. Uh, he says, of course, it may be shown that the general good, in quotation marks, is the ostensible object of any particular act. But the general good is a passive force. And unless we know who are the several individuals that benefit in its name, it has no meaning. When it's so analyzed, immediate and remote beneficiaries are discovered. So, so Beard, in other words, his interpretation of the Constitution, of, of the American regime, of its formation uh, from the very beginning, he's someone who does not believe that the common good exists. And I would submit to you that the majority of scholars throughout that sort of progressive era, um, that, that's how they approach their scholarship. That's how they approached, you know, social science. I mean, social science uh, is, is born at this point and it's rolling on. And so, so this... This is the lens through which the modern interpretation or the modern look back at the old republic, uh, that's the lens through, through which it all happens. So when, you, when it comes to uh, ideas that are more familiar, um, like the notion of liberalism, the very word liberalism, or applying the word liberal um, to the American founding, um, there's a, a, a famous uh, scholar whose book is mentioned in all the political science literature reviews uh, named Louis Hartz. And he wrote a book in the 50s called The Liberal Tradition in America. And it's sort of the beginning of like the modern era, our, our era of scholarship concerning the political philosophy of the founders. And, and what, what he ends up saying is, okay, it wasn't just economic interest. There were ideas there. But the ideas were liberal in the sense that we would all recognize the term, the sort of thing that Patrick Deneen is, is talking about. Um, it's all about individualism. It's all about Lockean political philosophy. Um, and that's what really drives the American founding. And there's a number of people kind of on the right and left after him who, who take up this, this mantra 
and say there was what we liberal consensus. There was a liberal consensus at the time of the American founding. And these weren't just reducible to economic or group interests. This is actually an ideology. And overall, what you see happening is after World War II, America becomes a world power. We have to remember that, right? I mean, so you notice my analysis is, is very much based on what scholars are seeing and experiencing at the time. I'll just let you know. Um, I don't know. Um, my simple example would be, you know why there's a, lot of, there's a lot of dissertations on alienation in the modern world? Have you ever met a grad student? <laughs> uh, but so, so, so what, you, what you see is America becomes a world power and starts to ask, what is America? What is Americanism? Who are we as a people? And Carl Becker is a good example of this. The same guy who in 1922 said, you know, to ask whether the declaration is true and false is a meaningless question. Uh, in, in the 1940s, with World War II on, uh, he, sa he says in the preface to that book, um, we, we've begun to move to a different place where we're, you know, it's not a meaningless question anymore. Ideas all of a sudden matter in the in scholarly interpretation of, of these events. So what, what ideas are, are present in the founding? Well, Hart's... Um, you know, breaks in a way from tradition and says, well, we are a people that was founded in ideas, but the master assumption of American political thought, he says, is the reality of atomistic social freedom. It's instinctive to the American mind, as in a sense, the concept of the polis was instinctive to Platonic Athens, or the concept of the church to the mind of the Middle Ages. Catastrophes have not been able to destroy it. Proletariats have refused to give it up, and even our progressive tradition, in its agonized clinging to a Jeffersonian world, has helped to keep it alive. So the implication, right, or I mean, better stated, the foregone conclusion is that there's simply no such thing as a notion of the common or public good in the thought of the founders or in the fabric of the American regime. Rather, the founders and everyone else sought to pr promote the atomistic interests of individuals. And at Hart's in his personal life, um, you know, and, and in his scholarship, is clearly he has this animus towards, he's mad about this because he is, uh, he fancies himself a real leftist and the progressives just didn't go far enough. The progressives were still too American and, and socialism really can't take hold in America and they just won't give up and it's all the fault of individual rights. It's all the fault of this atomistic, uh, you know, uh, really faith that burns zealously in every American heart. And of course, we're a world power. The commercial republic is now raging. You can see all the sort of critiques that come out in the, in the 60s and 70s about America once you assume that this is what is American at its core. Um, whether you're on the right or left, you're going to say this is a problem. So, um, so there we are. Now, a funny thing happens after World War II. We do start reading the words. Scholars like Balin and then Gordon Wood start realizing, wow, they did talk about the public good quite a bit, actually. And then on the, uh, say, Leo Strauss side of things, there's a bunch of scholars who the Claremont guys are related to did the same thing. They started to say, well, there's actually some ideas here that are somewhat interesting. What I think is shameful about this and why we need to have a little bit of humility is that we, we in a way, we didn't have the capacity philosophically to evaluate ourselves. I mean, if Leo Strauss is important at all, it's because he, he, he gave, gave a lot of American students access to... Uh, the deeper ideas and thinkers in the Western tradition. And then those students said, 
huh, we should evaluate what kind of regime we have based on what they said, right? And he's coming over uh, from Europe along with many others at the time to kind of help uh, uh, a small renaissance of kind of a, a great books movement or whatever you want to call it. And of course, the great books movement in America is a good example of this as well. What is that but a few people at a few schools saying, maybe we should continue reading some of these old books as opposed to what everyone else is doing, right? So, so when we then, so when we turn to evaluate our own regime, we have to acknowledge um, that, in a way, we've been intellectually empty or or cut off from a tradition that we are trying to resurrect or keep alive, uh, in, in in some kind of real way. Okay. Um, I, I I'll leave it there, but I, I just there's plenty more to talk about. Um, but we, you just, we, we really cannot emphasize enough how much political science literature is based on a framework that rejects the notion of the common good. So what I would say is, to conclude um, you know, how we got here, you have to question whether or not someone who doesn't understand what the common good is could recognize it or not, right? I mean, in other words, it may be true that the American regime bears within itself the evil seeds of atomistic freedom uh, that led to its demise and led to uh, transgender bathrooms today from you know, the Declaration in 1776 over the course of 250 years. That may all be true, but I'm not going to trust someone who doesn't understand what the common good is to get me there, right? That's all, that's all I'll say um, in humility. Okay, so, so, uh, so move to you know, what, what this thing is. How can I, at least in a, in a you know, short period of time, um, rattle, rattle some cages and suggest that maybe we haven't been told or we don't see uh, the whole truth. Well, there's different ways to approach this, right? There's different ways to approach this. I'd like to start with education because of the, uh, the company that we're in today. And um, I think the best way to start is there's a book, again, we haven't read the words. There's a book published in 1935 by a guy named James J. Walsh. And I, was, I remember when I found this, uh, like 15 years ago maybe, I'm in the stacks of a library. Um, has anyone been to a stack in a library in 15 years? I don't know. Uh, but, but the name of the book is Education of the Founding Fathers of the Republic, Scholasticism in the Colonial Colleges. And it's a Catholic guy uh, uh, writing a book about the senior theses that you had to argue in public in order to graduate from elite schools in the colonial period. One of many things I would do if, um, and I still may find a way to fund this, I'm talking to a few people about it, we should, we should really have an effort to recover these because they're absolutely amazing. And what Walsh does, I haven't, I haven't verified every single one of these, like trace them to the source, right? But he goes through, they're all published in Latin, he goes through these broadsides they would publish uh, for the graduating class of, say, Harvard or Yale. And what's great about them is they show you what the colleges were advertising that they taught. This is what you had to know in order to graduate from one of these universities. And so they publicly would announce the theses, and then you would go, and uh, every, people would come uh, in the audience, I assume maybe even more than the parents. I don't know who else would want to be there. And you would listen to these students have to publicly argue in, in a, you know, a version of the scholastic manner, manner for these propositions. <clears throat> this, this is, I, I do not know why 
this is some secret fact that I have to uh, say at, you know, in, in public and give speeches about. Physics at Harvard uh, in the 1650s, say, let me give you some non-political ones just so you get the flavor. So physics, uh, of course, the, the old, more Aristotle's physics than not. Physics at Harvard in the 1650s. Here are some of the theses. Form is the principle of individuation. Substance is not constituted out of mere accidents. The soul does not come into existence from the physical contribution of the parents. Metaphysics at Harvard in 1693. Whatever is, is positively good. Every being is good. Now, I know what you're thinking. It sounds a lot like Michelle Obama's thesis. Maybe George Bush's. Um, yeah, so, so that's, that, that gives you a flavor of, of the kind of education that was there um, really from, uh, from the beginning. So let me, uh, let me read some of these for you. Yeah, so, so let, me, let me run through some of these and, and end with um, a few on the common good. Uh, so Yale, 1797, uh, without virtue in literature, no republic can exist happy and free. In order that citizens may be gifted with virtue and intelligence is necessary, they should be instructed in letters, probably in good mor morals. Therefore, such institutions being neglected, a happy and free republic cannot exist. Um, there's certainly a notion of natural equality and liberty of all human beings among these that I've seen so far. I've looked at as many as I could find. Um, Brown in 17, 1769, uh, to reduce Africans to perpetual slavery agrees neither with divine nor human law. Um, but this, this liberty that you see, this equality, is shaped by this classical conception of virtue based on right reason study of human nature. And you see it over and over again. So on the one hand, this is U Penn in 1762. All of these would get you canceled today. Um, if, here it is. If, if man aspires to true happiness, he must make his actions conform to the laws of God. Well, quote, God demands the actions which beget happiness and, quote, prohibits those which bring misery. The difference between good and evil, virtue and vice set up by God is immutable because it's founded on the nature of things. And that last one is Harvard in 1810. But nature is accessible to reason. So rational investigation of morality and religion is possible since, quote, the principles of religion are in harmony with human nature and, quote, in all matters, reasonableness marked the apostles. And that's, that's Harvard again. Over and over again, you see demonstration shows us the existence of God. And, quote, when concerning any action, there is a question of knowing the will of God by the light of nature. The investigation must determine whether that action seems to be connected with the increasing of general happiness or the lessening of it. Systematic thinking about human nature uncovers you know, the virtues. So you see over and over again the idea that the study of ethics explains how prudence is the most difficult of virtues and justice is the mother of virtues. And you'd have to explain what those virtues are. Um, but also you, you would see uh, the notion that reason alone isn't enough. Um, maybe in a Protestant with a Protestant flair, but you know, demonstration, you can prove the existence of God is definitely there over and over again. And then you also see um, um, that, that faith is necessary in some way and philosophy is not enough. You'll see, that, you'll see that as well. So here's Harvard again in 1810. The will of God revealed by the light of either of nature or of sacred scripture is an adequate rule and norm of conscience. No civil law is just unless it agrees with the principles of the natural law. 
And here's one multiple times you see, for our purpose, whatever is opposed to the common good is also opposed to the law of nature. So this is, this is not, this is all the way through about 1810, 1820, right? I mean, this is, this is the education uh, of the founders. And what I would say, maybe to be even more provocative, is that in many cases, when you look at what they actually studied, they had a better liberal arts, great booksy education than, you know, great book schools provide today. And so we sit here, you know, laughing and talking about the seeds. Well, they didn't realize that we come to the founding to tell it what we think, right? You didn't realize the Declaration of Independence is actually responsible for people twerking. And, you know, I mean, these are people who read, read books in a more serious way in an actual still living tradition that they brought with them um, uh, from, from the UK who, who um, you know, who, who read, um, say, a lot of great books that are forgotten today. If you look at what they read for history, right, a lot of those famous histories, um, uh, Roman, Roman histories especially, I mean, we don't, even, we don't even know the names, even people who supposedly have a, a great booksy uh, education. So, um, so great. So they had a, they had a great education. Now, now, that's that's fine, Matt. Right? That's okay. But they still built a specific regime, and they built it a specific way. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about the ratification debate in particular, because there you see how they consciously formed right the very structure, the ordering structure that we've been talking about um, the, over the last twenty four hours what actually orders the Constitution, right, whether it's written or not, what actually orders um, this, this, political, this political body. Um, when it comes to ratification, there are, um, there are four ways in which I'd say the common good um, comes into play that are important for us. And let me just... Um, First is federalism. So the typical thing that happens when someone who understands something about what the common good is, is formed in that tradition, um, is then they go and they start looking like, okay, well, where was that in America? And they start reading the Federalist Papers or something like that. And they go, you know what? I don't really see any of Aristotle here. Um, I don't really see um, them talking about these things, right? And so therefore, I'm going to say that it wasn't here. Uh, one of the big problems is they weren't having a philosophic, uh, you know, discourse about the meaning of political regimes. Um, federalism looms large. So what does federalism mean? It means that they were not creating, um, they were not creating a polis out of whole cloth. They were creating a national structure, right, over ex pre a pre-existing structure that was very much alive, that was a living tradition, that has a, that has a history, that has a people. And, and while that was alive, they're forming something over it. And so what that federal government is, is in dispute. Now, what you see is that the people who supported the Constitution, the Federalists, very much spoke in the language of the, of the common good. Many times, though, they had to restrain themselves because the anti-Federalists did not want a, a, a national government that was too powerful. So the example is education. You just heard something about what the education of the framers uh, looked like. The first five presidents in the United States wanted a national university for obvious reasons. None of them thought it was unconstitutional. I'd love to get some of my friends on the right to acknowledge that today. 
because I think a lot of them would say, oh, that's, that, that's, that's unconstitutional. That doesn't make any sense. The first five presidents of the United States, George Washington was very big on this. They wanted a national university to frame the elite, you know, to shape the elite leadership in the country. But what prevented that from happening was um, really the, the vestiges of the Anti-Federalists or the heirs of the Anti-Federalist tradition who said, you know, hell no, I don't want some national university lording it over me. You know, I don't need that. And I think the conclusion that everyone came to was they already had national universities. In fact, we still have them. I, get, I, I, I find it a little bit like, well, the founders rejected virtue and the common good because uh, you do hear this specific argument, right? Because they didn't establish a national university. It's like, A, they wanted to. B, don't we still have the national universities that shape our leaders that they had? And aren't they quasi-official institutions? And aren't they still the same ones still around that have been here for hundreds of years? Yes, right? So, so I'm not sure what it would have added to create a national university, but nonetheless, that was certainly something they wanted to do. They couldn't do it because of, um, because of the opposition to the Constitution. Um, so there's a way in which federalism obscures the issue, and you have to be careful when people rip you know, quotes out of context um, because they're not giving their view of what government is. They're giving their view of what the national government ought to do in a specific in a specific context, right? So there's many people, for instance, who voted for ratification, who were supportive of the new constitution, um, who uh, were supportive of, say, the First Amendment, something going to the issues we argue about today, and religious liberty, who were also perfectly fine with Massachusetts having an established religion. So if you, in other words, if, if you do the cartoon integralist thing and you show up in a time machine into Massachusetts, right, around the time of the Constitution, and you, you, you told someone from Massachusetts, actually, what you've just done is completely modern. You've rejected religion and you created a situation. I mean, they probably would have punched you in the face. So what are you talking about? Because I have an established religion. Our laws are all about morality. The Massachusetts Constitution of the time, have you ever read the Massachusetts Constitution? One of the most beautiful documents in, in, uh, in political theory that's ever been written. The, the common good is not only name-checked, the common good is essential to everything it says in the preamble, including why there's support for religion and education in that constitution, in that official document. In many of the state documents, you see a specific notion of the common or public good, uh, just as you do in, in the preamble of the constitution itself. Okay, so, so, the, so federalism is, is, is complicated. It, it shows you that you can't just, you have to be very careful in how you interpret, right, what, what they were talking about, um, because this was, a scaled, this was a scaled system. We're not talking about, uh, we're not arguing about government in the way we would say if we were in a small republic and trying to decide whether or not it should be a monarchy or a representative form of government. There already are layers of government in existence. Second way you see the common good is in representation. And this one is, is really key. The Federalists over and over again reject the idea that pure democracy is a good thing. Over and over again. The Anti-Federalists are very much about representation as representing the people. So if you know any political theory, you might, you might know this, but it's, it's common sense. If we're going to elect people, Aristotle says that that's, in fact, an aristocratic move to elect people. Because democracy, you would pick people by lot, right? If we're all really equal and we're going to have a, we're going to have a democracy, why do we need to choose what, what some people are better than others? We should be able to randomly go around and maybe we just take turns or we, we have a lottery, right? And we allow various people to rule us. After all, we're all equal. That's the principle of democracy. 
But as soon as you bring in the notion of representation, you bring in the idea of a standard. Who are you going to elect and why? And so, so you, you see this, this is, this, both of those strands, by the way, are always in any representative form of government. So you see this dynamic right today where on the one hand, we all roll our eyes when the politician from big blue coastal city shows up in the hunting gear to be man of the people. And, or Liz Warren, you know, I, I'm drinking a beer. <laughs> uh, we all kind of laugh at that. And we, we say we want someone who passes the beer test, right? Or we want something who looks like us or represents us. And part of us wants that. But then, of course, um, uh, when I'm teaching, especially with uh, elite or students who fancy themselves elite, I, I like to ask them, I mean, so that's, that's great. So we, we, let's just pick someone who looks like America. Let's pick the average SAT right, from the average school, those people should get all the shots in D.C. They should be getting the jobs, right? After all, we want someone who represents the people. Well, no, actually, we want someone who's better than us, who can take the 3 a.m. call. Presumably, we want someone who knows more than us, right? So that idea of representation from the very beginning is seen as an aristocratic element, and it's directly tied over and over again to the public good. Because if you think pure democracy is fine, right, the danger is this kind of nihilism. You think the, whatever the majority will is, is good. But you see the explicit argument made over and over again by the Federalists that no, what the majority wants is not necessarily right or good. Uh, you need, the reason you need uh, representation is because hopefully you have people who both are possessed of the virtue and kind of the knowledge or information to actually act in the interest of everybody um, for the sake of the public good which is the phrase that they, uh, they would use, although common good is used uh, all the time. Uh, by the way, Madison is, is, is similar in this. Um, the idea that it was all checks and balances for him, I think, is just refuted by reading enough of the guy, um, regardless of what you think of his theory. And he, over and over again, even in Federalist Tenet itself, he mentions the public good six times. He, he's, he said, uses the phrase common good uh, at least once in, in Fed Ten itself. And he's talking about, you know, how in a large republic, all the factions will, will be there and ultimately will be good because the factions will check each other. But he defines faction. He defines faction as a body of people who's ad, who acts adverse to the interests of the public, adverse to the common good. So, so the reason the large republic works, even in the checks and balances theory, is that hopefully if you have, you, you expand the sphere and you have a large enough, uh, a large enough regime, some people will see that these people are up to no good, that they're not acting for the sake of, of the common good. And there's just no way, I don't think, to, to uh, conceive of whatever mistakes you think are there uh, philosophically. There's no way to, to, to look honestly at the way in which this Republican form of government is structured without seeing this Federalist concern for how the common good is, is going to be... Um, attained. Um, that's, that's ordering, in other words, the, the very structure of the regime. Uh, the, third, the third thing to note when it comes to the formation of the United States is union. Uh, people don't talk about this enough. The Federalists sure did. Uh, all those at the time did. Look, we just, we just won a revolution. People, you don't win a revolution by talking about individual rights. You know what the first, you know what the first complaint against the king is in the Declaration of Independence? I'm sure no one does. It's he's refused his assent to laws most necessary and wholesome for the public good. 
He wouldn't let us pass laws for the sake of the public good. It's not exactly a libertarian complaint. Right, so, so, so the, the rhetoric of the revolution, of course, was about, you know, we are one people. We have, uh, you know, our, our good together for the sake of all these higher ends is being threatened. Uh, and so that's almost a gimme. But when you move into the argument for the Constitution, the great question, and, and this is the same question that plagues us right now, is whether or not this body of people can constitute one people, whether it has a common good because it's so large. And there the Anti-Federalists make some very intelligent arguments. They say, well, we're just too varied, right? We disagree radically on very serious things. We don't actually have, we can't share in a common good. And the Federalists over and over again say, no, that's, that's actually false. We are one people. We do share uh, enough. Um, we're ordered towards the same things, at least to the extent that we can actually, we can have one country. And so this, this argument about union and that, that, that union is possible, that union is desirable, and that union above all is what must be kept moving forward is a central theme of the American founding. So after the Constitution is passed, um, uh, James Wilson makes a speech that I'll, I'll talk about in a second. And the whole, the whole you know, the ordering principle of Federalist rhetoric after the Constitution is passed is because they all know it's imperfect, right? No one gets what they want from the Constitution. It's a big argument in Philadelphia. Everyone walks away thinking like, I mean, Hamilton's like, maybe it will last 50 years. I don't know. Yeah. We did the best we could. But after they get it, the whole argument is we are one people and we don't hold to the Constitution, which is Aristotle has a famous line uh, where he talks about how if you're going to have uh, a government with the many involved, you have to cling to that constitutional order. You really need that because the many can be very powerful and you've activated them politically and they're just going to do whatever they want. And that will that will become tyranny very quickly unless you are, are bound to the Constitution. So the, the argument for uh, you know promoting the Constitution afterwards is very much about uh, union, that we have a common good together. And if we reject this order that we just decided to accept, that will all fall apart. This order, in a sense, is our, our, our common good. Okay. And the last, the last um, way in, I want to talk about common good in the, in the founding is really important, and I think um, very much uh, in dispute today, and I just don't think it, sh it should be, at least in, in the manner, the flippant manner in which people talk about America and liberty and individual rights and so forth. There is an argument that's been obscured, actually, by conservative scholarship, I would say, uh, about, about liberty and licentiousness in the founding period. Over and over again, the people who are supporting the Constitution, the Federalists, talk about the problem of licentiousness. Licentiousness is exactly what uh, Patrick Deneen and others uh, who rightly read the situation today would describe as you know, unfettered liberty, unbounded liberty. I, what I want to suggest is the reason the Constitution is passed is because a bunch of people are concerned about that very problem. They're concerned about it in uh, radical democracies and state legislatures that are passing whatever they want. And over and over again, you hear these arguments that there is a difference between liberty and licentiousness. We guarded ourselves against tyranny, against the king. Many of them say this. Uh, founding fathers, people very, very, uh, people who signed the document, right? Signed the Constitution. We guarded ourselves against tyranny, but we haven't guarded ourselves against liberty, against un unbounded license. 
and they view the Constitution as a way to rein that in. Why? Because it's aristocratic. One half of one third of the branches, right? Only one half of one of the three branches is popular election at the time the Constitution passes. I don't know how you get more aristocratic than our judiciary, right? I mean, electoral college, still extant, not, as, not quite as powerful as it was. Um, and then the Senate, of course, being elected by uh, the state legislatures. So, so they viewed um, the Constitution as a way to check licentiousness because of the aristocratic elements that they had fought very hard to keep in there, and also because I think of the strong executive that many of them had fought very hard um, to, keep, to keep in there. There's, a, there's an enormous uh, and interesting uh, debate that unfolds about executive power, but what you notice is uh, people like Hamilton were fighting very hard to ensure um, that the executive had a lot more power than a lot of people wanted to give the, presidents, the presidency, because of course they just came out of a situation in which the king was the bad guy, um, and all, especially the guys with, uh, with experience in politics all promoted a more powerful presidency and, and made, to some degree, uh, the president's powers uh, somewhat open-ended, um, which I th turned out to be, I think, a great boon to the republic, um, notwithstanding all the problems we have today. Okay, so I want to I give you a little flavor of this because I can see you not believing me. I think one of the problems that we have is we can't believe this about ourselves. I would just I would explicitly confront that within your own head and heart. Our entire training is to say there's no way that any of this is actually true. They could not have actually, you know, been reading Aristotle. Jefferson didn't really re take Aristotle seriously. They didn't really understand these kinds of concepts. Um, and you know, I, I think that 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 lurks within the modern mind because of the layers of the last of the last century of sort of rejection of these ideas. So let me give you a flavor of, um, of a Federalist talking about commerce. So Noah Webster writes a kind of a policy brief, like an essay in the public prints, and he's, he's talking about money, the economy. So April of 1789, uh, he, says, he says this. He says, an immediate and powerful cause of the corruption of social principles. Just think about the conversation we just had about the household, right? This is the kind of thing they're, they're thinking about. An immediate and powerful cause of the corruption of social principles is a fluctuation of money. Few people seem to attend to the connection between money and morals, but it may doubtless be proved to the satisfaction of every reflecting mind that a sudden increase of specie in a country and frequent and obvious changes of value in, in, the, in, the, in the money are more fruitful sources of corruption of morals than any events that take place in a community. So moral, you know, the moral life of the people is directly tied to monetary policy, regardless of whether we think he's right or wrong about this particular. So he gives numerous concrete examples of laws that could help curb such temptations. He says laws to prevent credit would be beneficial to poor people. Um, he says that you know, the morals of the people and the influence of money on men's sense of justice and moral obligation is real. Men are influenced more by habit than by any abstract ideas of right and law, wrong, and the assumption is law influences habit. So therefore, he says, quote, in governments like ours, it is policy to make it the interest of the people to be honest. In short, the whole art of governing consists in binding, binding each individual by even his particular interest with money to promote the interest of the community. 
So he thinks, you know, you have to have laws that prevent credit. And the way he describes their benefit is he says, they, they may gradually chance a man's regard for his property to a more active and efficient principle and attention to his character. So I would love it if some of my fellow uh, conservatives would, would talk about economic policy in such terms uh, today. Um, they seem to be afraid to, uh, but the founders, the founders were not. And, and it, this was very much tied into uh, to why the Constitution ends up passing. Uh, one one note before I wrap up, they they didn't they weren't afraid to state publicly that sometimes the majority of people are wrong, or that you know licentiousness is a problem. Licentiousness is in fact written into some of the constant state constitutions as a problem. So for instance, New York, state of New York has a constitution. Uh, the, I think it's the first like amendment their their version of the First Amendment, and it says it's protection of religious liberty. But then it adds this caveat. So it's, you know, protecting uh, worship of God. And then it says, uh, but of course, uh, this doesn't apply to licentiousness. <laughs> right? Now, the, the politician in me says, well, that's the real trick, isn't it? Like, how do we define what's licentious? But, but the word itself, this is written all over the public documents. So it's not, as if, it's not as if, in other words, that these arguments I'm describing were just arguments had among the wise or the esoteric teaching. I mean, they were publicly making these arguments and promoting the Constitution, and the Constitution was, in fact, uh, adopted by that, by that same public. Okay, so I will, I will wrap up. Um, what does this say about where we're going? How does this relate at all to, uh, to the situation we're in now? <clears throat> I, I would say this. My card's on the table. I think we are in a very serious kind of regime crisis. I think that the critique, at least, that uh, people like um, Deneen, who we've, we've published at American Mind, give of the situation we're in now um, has a lot of truth to it. The problem, I think, is that moving forward, we, we have this tendency to blame the isms um, and, and to tie our form of government, right, in the deepest sense, directly to these, these moral, this moral problem we face. Does that make any sense? In other words, I would be very reluctant to, if, if, someone, if someone ever says to you, well, if we just changed our form of government, right, that would solve all these problems. That's not true at all. That's not even good political philosophy. You can't just willy-nilly change the form of government. You have to deal with what you have, and you have to work prudentially, right? And if you want to blame Republican government, okay, that's fine. That's a debate we can have in philosophy class. Um, but, but I think it, it's, a, it's a mistake to directly tie regime form or the American regime, you know, as, it was, as the old republic was formed for bearing the evil seeds of this crisis. I think that's, there's, it's far too easy to do that. And it's very tempting to do that. Right. And, and, and the problem is that if you want to seriously think about these things, you have to think about the actual flesh and blood reality of, of history in order to learn something about politics today. Just as if you want to solve politics today, you have to actually know the flesh and blood landscape of what it looks like if you want to propose something in policy that's actually going to work moving forward. So what I would say is um, to uh, my integralist pals, um, of, of which there are many, um, you know, I think if I airdropped a lot of them into Massachusetts in the 1780s, the citizen of Massachusetts would call them a squish. So you, you don't go far enough. Look at our laws. Look what we've done. You're unwilling, in fact, 
to do the same for the Catholic Church. You, you don't, you're not even dreaming of going as far as we've gone, right? Do you know what the laws looked like in, in the American states uh, in the early republic when it came to morality? I mean, does anyone have any idea? I mean, this is what, uh, this is what some of the lefty scholars like to you know, complain about. Um, but the, the truth is, yeah, there were a lot of laws on the books that related directly to the virtue of the people. Some of them are still on the books, right? I mean, I can't get booze sometimes in certain states when I want. Why is that? That's because people understand that law is directly tied to virtue, right? And I would submit the problem now is not so much um, the, the, uh, the lie of liberalism, that government can be neutral. That's a lie, right? If we believe it's a lie, it's a lie. The problem now is that there's a new religion that people are very zealous about that's promoting its morality through the law. In other words, is that the form of government's fault? Right? I, I would hesitate to say yes. At least don't do that too easily. There's, there's a lot to think about here. Anyway, I, I would say um, in conclusion, as an alternate kind of history, rather than the slow decline um, from you know, the idea of natural rights um, eating away at the American soul and atomistic freedom being there from the beginning, what I would suggest is, is actually uh, what DeConnick's life mission really was uh, focused on is that there's a problem with our very concept of human nature that plagues the entire Western world, no matter what form of regime you have, whether or not you wrote the Trinity and uh, Christ himself into your constitution a couple hundred years ago. And that crisis relates to how modern science um, rose up and really took a position from which uh, the church has never fully recovered uh, in most Western regimes. And the response to that, I think, was, was, it, was just, it was right and just that Thomism was purposely uh, resurrected or, or promoted. But we have to be honest and say that is not an intellectual battle that has been won. And until the notion of the human person and the notion of, of nature itself, um, that, that really is the framework through which politics operates, until we solve that problem, uh, it doesn't matter what form of regime we seek to magically wave our hands and, and make appear. I'll end there. <laughs>